0: Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. I'm Linda Lasina, Special Projects Director of Entrepreneur.com, and today I'd like to introduce you to Katherine Minshew. Hi, Katherine. Hi. Katherine is the founder of The Muse, a fast-growing career development platform that does more than connect users with job opportunities. It helps them answer the question, what do I want to do with my life? It launched in 2011 and now has more than 4.5 million monthly users. We'll be talking about growth, keeping goals in sight, and how to stay in touch with what's really important. But first, a word from our sponsor. We know the world of business can be unpredictable. But Chase for Business has what you need to help keep you on top of your finances so you can own whatever comes your way next. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. We are excited to have you. I want you, first of all, to uh, orient some of our listeners as to the Muse. In just a couple sentences, explain to them uh, how the Muse is different than the typical career site. Absolutely. So there's three big things that make us different. Firstly, we're visual. The entire
1: website, uh, when you go to themuse.com, it's uh, big, high-resolution photos. It's videos of people in different careers. So you can hear from an engineer at Facebook, somebody in design at the Gap or Marriott, um, somebody who works in analytics at a major insurance company, you can hear from them, what do they do in a typical day? What is their job like? Um, You can see it, you can really experience what your life would be like if you chose these different career paths. So first is visual. Second, it's intensely personal. Again, we want to make those one-to-one connections between people and the career that inspires them and between others in that career. So we offer the ability to book career coaching. We really allow you to map what you're looking for and take agency over your career. And then thirdly, um, it's exploratory. I think so many classic career sites, they start with a big box. What do you want to do? Enter the job title here. But so many of our users don't necessarily know exactly what that title or that job is. And so we allow them to browse and discover in the same way that Pandora or Spotify really allowed people to discover new music. I think for us, the classic Muse user is in their 20s or 30s very driven, very aspirational. But again, they don't necessarily have that step A, step B, step C, linear path. And so we allow them to really pull together all of the resources they need for their career in a way that is that is catered to them and to the way they want to consume information. Um, and I think it's it's been really exciting and empowering as a
0: result. Very cool, very cool. I want to give people also a sense for the growth of The Muse and sort of how things have sort of changed, right? So you've described the early days of The Muse in interviews as blood, sweat, and ramen. Uh, <laughs> if I had a time machine and I was dropped down into that, what would I be looking at? Where are you working? How many people are sitting around a table? What, 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 what am I looking at? Yeah, um, so firstly, you'd be probably in my living room. Uh, my co-founder
1: and I shared an apartment at one point with her then boyfriend, now husband. Uh, the office was our living Room, um, our first employee Adrian would come over for the day's work, and and half of us would still be in pajamas because we'd been up till four a.m. the night before, furiously working. During our kind of angel fundraising round, I was in meetings consistently from about you know eight thirty nine a.m. to six thirty seven p.m. and then I'd come home and do six to eight hours of email. I was getting you know six no's a day. So that, that's where the blood comes in. Uh, it's really, really tough. And the good thing, and I think the thing that kept us going is our users, they, you know, small but mighty, the user feedback was incredible. People would write in and say, I have never felt this way using a career platform. I have never felt so in control of my job. I didn't realize I wasn't the only one who felt like this or like that. And it felt like we'd really hit on this powerful nerve from a user perspective, but we hadn't figured out how to translate that into a business model or an investor pitch in the early days. So I think we got the business model. We launched the first company profile in, mm-hmm. gosh, March of 2012. Um, and that was literally me, my co-founder and and you know the early one or two employees, going into these companies with a video camera mm-hmm. and taking pictures of the office and sitting down with people and saying, So what you know what does it mean to be a product manager? What do you do? What's your day like? How'd you get into this? What's your background? And slowly we upgraded to professional photo and video. <laughs> um, you know, slowly, we stopped doing everything. Uh, there have been a number of kind of turning points for the business, but uh, one of the early ones was when we got into Y Combinator, and I was watching uh, the Ides of March, that George Clooney movie, was in the theaters, and I went to see it to take my mind off, you know, were they going to say yes or no, and when my phone rang uh, in the middle of the movie, I just tore out into the hallway, and I put it on speakerphone to hear from Paul Graham, but my co-founder didn't realize it was on speaker, so she started screaming, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was really embarrassed, but, it, you know, they thought it was hilarious, and um, and that was that was the first person who said yes in a long stream of no's and you know we got a few more yeses after that but they were few and far between i think you've got to be motivated by something else in the early days to get through a period of time like that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And so now, um, if somebody stepped into your offices, what are they looking at? What's different about the Muse now than it was in the early days?
1: Yeah, I, I love when people come into our offices and say, wow, this feels amazing. I feel so at home. That's something that I think we really look for. Um, we've got offices uh, here in New York City in Flatiron. As of this morning, we have 60 full-time employees working there. And, you know, it's it's a big, very bright open area it's not fancy it's but it is comfortable i would say we have a a kind of inside joke around drafts so there's some blow-up drafts and some draft stuff there's pictures on the walls there's couches for people to work when they don't want to be at their desks. different different areas and i think it's a very collaborative office you can always see people are moving around and talking with others and you know we have a very strong culture of you know great ideas can come from everywhere and of, of experimentation so being wrong is okay as long as you learn from it and I think that begets a lot of conversations and, and experiments. And, um, you know, it's just a very active office. And I'd say it's, you know, it's fairly noisy. We're, we're working on that. Actually, we have two rooms right now that are quiet for people that want, you know, to work in a little bit more focus. But the core office has definitely got a lot of just hum of conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Now, having a couple people uh, in your living room is different than having 60 people in an office, very. right? I mean, how do you keep it consistent? How do you keep those values? What are what are you, the things that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So I think having great culture as a startup is very deliberate. If you say we're going to worry about that later, you will end up with a culture. It just won't. Be the one that you want and so for my co-founder for alex and i since the early days but especially once we started getting bigger than you know 10 15 20 when you can no longer touch everybody in one room you have to talk about the culture and write it down and be explicit about it in a way that you don't have to when you're five people. So for us, it was laying out a series of core values. Uh, We use them in every single interview. We assign different interviewers a couple of the core values and make sure that people have these as part of every hire that we make. We use them in promotions. So for the parts of the company where we're we're sometimes promoting people to a team lead or a manager, uh, we'll make sure that the core values and living up to that are a part of those. And then we've done a couple of different activities within the company. We call out somebody in every all-hands meeting uh, for living up to one of the core values. Every one of the companies encouraged to nominate people for that. And I think, again, it's it's really about saying, look, you know, every company wants to be quote unquote great, but what does great mean for you? And how is it different? And I think we're very lucky in that, you know, part of the muse as a company and, and as a product is looking into all these different companies and seeing what makes them tick and for example you might have company A that's like you know we're committed to excellence we're smart we work hard we don't have stupid questions go 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 <laughs> and company B is like you know we're a family we all share everyone cares about everyone we've got you know focus on work life balance and this and that and and both of those can be amazing places to work but you can't necessarily maximize both of those at the same time and that's okay so for us it's been figuring out who are we what do we stand for and how do we make sure that that everyone knows that and i think The flip side is you also have to be willing to discipline and fire for it when necessary. So um, it's not a fun thing to talk about, but we also, I think, have, have made sure people know that living according to the core values of the muse is also a really, you know, it's not only important to get a promotion, but it's important for everyone. That's what we expect of people who work at the company. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Give us sort of an idea of what some of those core values might be.
1: Yeah, so the one that people often mention the most in the interview is the no jerk rule or the no a-hole rule, <laughs> depending <laughs> on, you know, what, what we're allowed to say here. <laughs> um, I it's I think you know, space, Catherine. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and I think that's a really easy thing to say, but a harder thing to do in practice. When we were hiring for our sales team. Very early on, we interviewed somebody who was clearly stellar, uh, had a phenomenal track record of success. Um, we had good reason to believe they would bring in not only uh, just a whole host of industry contacts, we felt like they could add a you know, large, let's say, 25% immediate increase to our revenue uh, when they ramped up. And yet, we just got the sense that they weren't a good person, they would not be good to work with, and I think this is everything from you know how you treat your coworkers, how you express when you're frustrated. Yes, everyone gets frustrated, but do you yell? Do you use curse words at people? That's just not acceptable um, in in the way that we hire. So we made the decision not to hire that person. Um, and it's you know I think there's other core values that are softer. We actually deliberately don't uh, publish them or write about them because we don't want people to kind of come in and and try and game the system. But it, you know for the most part, it's it's not rocket science but it's looking for people that think about their work and, and take pride in uh, what it is that they do in a similar way and for us it's also again going back to that collaborative people that are really excited to learn from and work with others versus generally someone who says you know this is my sandcastle and don't touch it you know don't add to it you wouldn't understand it things like that um, while they can be correlated with people that are very very good at what they do I think over time that can really erode the culture from within.
0: Another challenge to growth is sort of keeping people connected to the mission. And uh, you have uh, some very interesting ways on sort of putting a human face on the user even as people become more and more specialized. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Muse
1: is incredibly mission-driven as a company. In fact, I would go so far as to say nearly every single employee at the company had lots of other options, but they chose to work at the Muse because They love what we're doing, and they believe that people should have better tools to navigate their career and that we can have an impact on millions of people who are struggling with one of the most core decisions, which is what do I do for a living and how does that impact my life and define who I am? Um, but again, you know, when you have a large group of people, you've got to find ways to really make that tangible. And so for us, we often will share out emails from users. We share them sometimes through email. Uh, we're starting to put them in HipChat, which is our internal chat tool. I know everyone's switching to Slack. We're still on HipChat for now. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, it, and it's sometimes as simple as just seeing someone who said, I was in a rut. I had no idea what doing. I felt like I was at this total dead end and somebody turned me on to the Muse and let me write out for you how it changed where I am. And I think that can be very motivating. We also recently, I was at a conference and the CEO of another company mentioned that he often has people come in either in person but often digitally to their all hands so one of their clients or someone who used their product to get employment might uh, skype or google hangout into their all hand and share their story and i thought that's really powerful so we're experimenting with that for our next all hands in december and i think you know there's there's no way you can motivate people in my mind that is more powerful than getting them excited about the mission they're tackling and the people they're doing it with And so if you can continue to help people see the potential of that mission, what happens if you succeed? How will the world be different? And you can show them how their work and their team fits in. I think ideally that's the recipe for people that are very passionate about what they do. And you also get more creative people that way because if they're taking ownership of the larger problem, they're more likely to come to you and say, you know, I noticed this part of the business doesn't work as well as it should. I wonder if we did this. We've had people on the sales team say, "You know, I thought it could be really helpful to create this other part of the sales." But people just take initiative, which I think is honestly incredibly ideal in a startup because there's never enough people to do all the things. It's so exciting to me when someone on our team will say, "You know, I know it's technically not my job to do this thing, but I think that I have an idea for how to solve it, and if everyone's okay with that, you know, assuming it's not like." totally stepping on anyone's toes, then yeah, by all means, like go to it. And then it can be very, what's the word, very motivating and, and exciting for that person to see something that they took initiative on spread across the whole organization. Um, it's that sense of ownership that I think is so important to being at a small company that's trying to be the you know, the, the David and, and take on a Goliath.
0: Is that the the tricky part, actually putting values into action? So many companies have mission statements. They work very hard. They put them on little posters or there's a web page on, <laughs> their, on their site that maybe no one looks at. They don't even remember that they, they did it. Um, is, is that the tricky part, remembering every day, deciding to put that into action. What do you think about that? Yeah,
1: I think, firstly, you have to live your values, obviously, but that's easier said than done. And I think that means, firstly, you've got to choose values that are actually what's happening. I think one problem is a lot of companies choose values that they wish they had. But ultimately, I think it's really important, for the most part, uh, to figure out who you are as a company. And again, the earlier you do this, the easier it is. Because when you have 60 people, it's a lot harder to steer that ship. Then I think it comes down to you, first as an individual, and then as a leadership team, and making sure that you know just because your um, head of so-and-so department is phenomenal that you don't let them yeah, sort of get away with you know doing something that's really not in line with your core values because well, they're so good at their job and that's just who they are and I think ultimately it's really important to say hey look you know you know I think you're incredible at what you do but I noticed that this happened and it's really important that we have this core value of respect or whatever it is and I think if you get people onboard. They also, they want to live out and ensure those values spread so that you're not the one policing it. But that is for me why we're doubly, triply, 10x, you know, more careful on leadership hires. Because when you hire a leader, they tend to replicate themselves in their department. And so I think if you hire somebody who is a poor values fit, um, who's an individual contributor, it's frustrating and you lose a lot of time. But you can figure that out and either let that person go. Obviously, ideally, give them a chance to perform or manage them out. But if it's a leader, it's often really tough because they often will they'll hire mini versions of themselves, um, and then it becomes much more challenging to fix.
0: And you've written about a, a startup that you had right before you did the Muse, right? And it was it was a no go, but you started. From scratch, you started over. You rose from the ashes <laughs> from that. How did it shape how you think about goals and um, how you uh, sort of approach a new company? But, but in particular, goals, right? Because you you wanted to recreate a new company um, and um, and learn from it clearly. And what lessons did you learn? And, and how did it shape you? I mean, that was probably one of the most. Formative experiences for me as an entrepreneur. I worked on
1: that company for about ten months. It ended in a really terrible situation that started with a dispute. I think it taught me so much, you know, from more pedestrian lessons such as always sign legal documents when you put time and money into a project. You can get into some bad situations. Again, this this is why I'm probably so intense about our core values. Is that it was very clear, pretty early on in the first company that we had some different values among the co-founders. And yet I just kind of thought, you know, oh gosh, I'll deal with that later. These people are gonna bring these other things to the company. You know, we'll just make sure that that doesn't become an issue. And I think it was a really clear lesson that you can't just do that. In terms of my goals, we were very ambitious with our early goals at The Muse. And it was partially because I also realized that if you are going to make your mark on a, a big established industry, you've got to be strategic, but you've also got to say, this is how we're going to do it. And these are the numbers that I'm going to hold myself to. These are the metrics. And I think in the first company, we we were a little bit too much on the experimental side. Of like, well, we'll just try this. And oh, hmm, that didn't work very well. And we weren't necessarily being rigorous in learning from it and experimenting. And so when I started the Muse, you know, we were able to reach with 20,000 people use the Muse in the first month, 26,000 in the second, and 70,000 in the third, and it was really both putting those numbers on the board and then holding ourselves to them and doing everything throwing every you know every idea against the wall measuring testing trying over again being comfortable with failing but also ultimately saying we are going to be able to get there and we're going to work hard until we do and so you know i think that in any startup setting goals is ultimately a balance between ambition and empathy because you have to be ambitious enough to say that you can scale Everest as a team, and you've got to be empathetic enough to say sometimes, you know what? We worked so hard, and we did our best, and it we just didn't do it and let's not flog ourselves let's figure out why and what it is that we're going to change for next time.
0: Uh, in in a previous life you helped introduce vaccines to Rwanda and Malawi through the Clinton Health Access Initiative. I can imagine that there's a number of things that are harder in uh, sort of helping with that sort of effort. Mm-hmm. What's harder in the muse than in some of some of your previous life? What what is the challenge there that is new that you didn't have uh, in sort of other initiatives that you've worked on? Oh gosh. <laughs>
1: so there's there's a number I think, you know, capital comes to mind having to both make money and raise money, and often both, is a definitely a very unique challenge. I think that previously, you know, I worked in management consulting at McKinsey and I, I worked with the Clinton Health Access Initiative in, in East Africa, and both of those were incredible, but I was working on relatively well-established organizations. In some cases, the specific projects or tasks I was assigned were completely new, but I had the resources of an establishment. And so I think what's hard about startups is you are often literally building everything. So it's not only uh, what does our new product look like, but how do we price it, and who within an organization buys it, and oh, by the way, you have somebody who is going on parental leave, so now you need a new policy, and you've got you know all of these legal and HR and people issues as well, and you want to do right by your people. So I think the, the level of complexity um, in a startup is just tremendous. And then I would also just say that I think being responsible for making sure that people are communicating in a really healthy fashion, again, that's in my experience, that's something that I dealt with less in previous jobs, perhaps because there's often a very clear hierarchy and an established team with you know one or two new people that a startup you can be growing so quickly that what worked three months ago no longer may work. And that's okay. But it's, I think, constantly saying, just because this is the way we do things, is it the right way? Is it the best way? And for us, it's been instituting, you know, weekly meetings with all of our team leads, thinking through um, how and what we communicate. We're starting um, to do, you know, Muse history classes uh, because we have enough employees who are really excited about the early days and they can follow in the press, but they want to get together as a team and kind of talk about, okay, well, what was the experience of the first fifth employee at the Muse like? So thinking through, I think, the communication between people and and how you make sure that everyone's on the same page. That wasn't something that I really had to deal with in the same way before starting the Muse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What would be in a Muse history lesson? <laughs> so um, I do a Muse history lesson for every class of new hires. That's kind of the the high-level overview. So uh, we take them through the early days. Actually, I love showing people screenshots from the early Muse product because I think that there's such a tendency in startups to look at a finished product, or, I mean, finished hardly, but to look at something that is three, five 10 years along and say, wow, that looks great. But when you look at what the muse was um, in January of 2012, it was not that nice looking. And that's okay. That's that's pretty classic. So I I find it kind of fun to show people some old screenshots. Um, I show them actually a picture of all of us working in the living room office um, and uh, a couple other just early pictures but interestingly, people, what we're now doing is coming up with optional sessions on specific issues. So we're going to do a whole session on fundraising, what our fundraising experience was like, how the seed and the Series A are different. Um, we're going to do a whole session on just the early employees. So the first you know, five or six people at the Muse, I think all of them are actually still at the Muse. So we're going to you know, let people ask them questions about what their experience was like. I might do one about the failure of my first company and like really go into the good, bad, and ugly from that. We actually were soliciting topics from the company. It's like, what would you want to hear about? You know, it'll it'll probably be don't tweet it off the record. <laughs> no, right? but I want people to be able to feel like like we are all responsible for the success of this company. We're all in the ship together, and if it feels like you and me or them and me, I think you're not doing it right. So for me, that's a really powerful way to kind of help people really get excited about and understand and buy into the shared history and I think that gets you even more excited for the future together as well.
0: Both uh, to sort of drive the culture and uh, to actually just do the hard work of running the company, right? Making sure you have the funding, the resources that people need to do the job. You have to have your eye in um, a lot of a lot of areas, but you also have to have sort of an, an instinct and a gut uh, for for what's needed. What are the traits that you think are helping you uh, to to both have that gut, right, um, and also to to have that sort of analytical sense of this is this is what we need now and this is how we're going to do it? What What are the traits you depend on? It's always hard to analyze
1: yourself and and try and see what is it about me that makes certain things work better? And and the flip side, what is it about me that that is potentially holding us back? I think some of the things that have been very helpful, one is that I tend to be very good at synthesizing a lot of information and a lot of inputs. So when we are considering something that we've never handled before or we've never done before as a company usually it's either problem type A which is lots of other people have done this and they've come with a variety of outcomes or it's problem type B totally new and no one's done it for type A I tend to find 3 to 6 people who have experienced who've made the decision done the thing whatever it is whether it's policy HR or whether it's a business model question and talk to all of them and Interestingly, I often find with uh, a couple of different inputs, I can trust my gut on after, especially, you know, two, three, four, oh, interesting, that seems like something that's probably right for us to do too, or, "Hmm, you know what, I get why that worked for them, but I don't think that's right for us. And it's kind of matching the collective montage of what everyone else has said against your own situation. For things that are completely new, I think that you, you really have to be rigorous about saying what is the best possible way to test this? What are ways to experiment test versus spend. You know, going all in on something. So we, for example, have known for a while that we wanted to launch some sort of one-to-one career coaching as part of the Muse. And yet, that's a potentially huge piece of work. It's a big new area of our business. And so in July, uh, we said, look, why don't we just email 12,000 users with a specific set of, I think we had three career coaches. We'll hand recruit them. We'll do everything manually. But just see, out of 12,000 people, how many book A career coach and the results were fascinating we then interviewed every career coach we interviewed everyone who booked we learned enough that we were then able to make a much bigger bet in that space so anyway go back back to your question I think it's I would say ability to synthesize lots of information and comfort making a decision when the answer is not clear but where possible setting your decision up so that you have inputs so that if it wasn't the right decision at all you learn it as quickly as possible and if it was you get that input And then I think that from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted to hire people who were better than me at each area of the business and free them to do their jobs. So I generally make it a point of not overruling my direct reports. You know, if it's something that impacts several areas of the business, then yes, we might get together and and bring the areas. But, you know, within editorial, ultimately, there are a lot of things that are just Adrian's decision. That's our editor-in-chief and first employee. And within sales, there are things that are Doug's decision. And... I think it's very powerful when you have really talented people to say, look, ultimately within you know this entire sort of decision set, I trust you. And let's talk about it and I'll give you what I think, but this is your ship and it's your decision. Um, and I think that when people feel responsible and empowered in that way, again, it goes back to the motivation. And also uh, they start to think about the business like owners, which is I think what we all are. Um, we all
0: have stock in the muse, and We all really want it to be everything it can be. You've seen other startups um, sometimes flourish, sometimes stagnate, sometimes you know have a sad ending. If you had a time machine and um, you knew that there was a potential risk for your business, right, what scares you? What is the thing you want to prevent? What's the cloud on the horizon that you know could face you because a lot of startups uh, might be facing that same reality? What's the risk that uh, as you guys grow that you want to make sure that you guys overcome? That's an interesting question. I think I mean, there's a an internal risk, which
1: is I want us to make sure that our culture and our team continues to stay this strong. And I've certainly seen that happen with good friends of mine who run you know, startups that are very well-known and very successful. Um, sometimes they, they make the leap successfully, and other times they get so caught up growing very fast, often growing revenue or growing users very fast, that suddenly they wake up and realize the company has sort of deviated from the path it was on in terms of the the people and the culture and the core, and it's really important to me that that doesn't happen. I also think that there's both a risk and an opportunity in the jobs Market career market because it's very cyclical. There are periods of time, um, like you know, sort of 2005, 2006, 2007, a little bit like now, where companies are hiring. They are spending money. They are recruiting people, and we offer one of the best ways right now for companies to hire great employees in their 20s and 30s. So we have a tremendous advantage in terms of signing up new clients. You know, working with everything from your tech startups, Facebook, Uber, etc., to a bunch of big companies who want to hire, but if we hit another recession, there will be a retreat of some of that money. Um, Companies don't stop hiring, particularly larger ones, but they definitely are less aggressive and they'll often look to do more with less. At the same time, when the hiring market pulls back, people start spending more money on their own personal career. They go back to grad school, they hire career coaches, they work on their resumes, they take additional classes to learn skills. So I think the way the business is going, we're very well positioned to be able to balance both sides of that cycle. But I do keep an eye on let's make sure, and that's one of the reasons we launched coaching now versus waiting another year, let's make sure that business is mature enough to be able to provide that counterweight. So I mean, I'm always keeping an eye on on cycles. And I mean, there's a million other things as a startup, you can never kind of rest easy. But I also think if you've got a great team, a solid product and there's no kind of secret holes in the numbers that you're mm-hmm. hiding which you know definitely happens sometimes. But I think once you know once you get to a point and I would say for us it was really about a year ago, it's really about execution and having the right people.
0: Is there a sense to, uh, now? so you're surrounded by goals all day long, right? I know that uh, you've mentioned that the company, every six months, you sort of work with people to both have a um, personal goal as well Mm. as sort of a professional goal. What are you working on both for the company? That's one of the things I find most interesting about the Muse, right? So you're living your life, right? (laughs) You're you're being Catherine, right? So you're trying to be the best Catherine you can be. But you're also um, trying to make the Muse the best platform that it can be. So what's your six-month goal for the Muse? And what's your six-month goal for for Catherine? i mean, perfect timing
1: because as we come into the end of one year and the beginning of the next, a lot of my thinking is, what are the right goals and what do I need to do now to make sure we achieve them in six months? So, you know, I, I can't get too specific with The Muse, but <laughs> we, um, <gasps> I know, <laughs> it's, uh, let's just say that we've had aggressive multiples in growth last year. So we're looking to continue that. We believe we can continue that. Um, so for The Muse, we have a revenue goal, a user goal, and we're also looking at um, a product goal. So making sure that you know the muse that you use today is not the same as what you use in six months and how do we especially as our audience gets bigger and more diverse how do we make sure that a 32 year old let's say single mother who's going back into the workforce after taking some time off has the personalized experience on the muse that she needs and then a 23 year old you know first second job out of college just learning the ropes can get that i think we have both things but we're not doing as good as we can at uh, allowing people to find the part of the muse, the corner of the muse that fits them. And then as far as my personal goals are concerned, I mean, <laughs> I was joking about this earlier, but I think the biggest one is just not to like completely lose my personal life in <laughs> focusing on the muse. So it's making sure to spend time with, you know, with, with family. My brother lives in the city, so making sure to, to see him regularly catch up with my parents, see you know, spending time with the people that are really close to me. And I, I keep saying, and maybe this will be the six months that I actually do it, I keep saying, like, I need a hobby because I don't really do anything other than, you know, <laughs> the muse, sleep, and my kind of close circle of, of family and friends. But you never know. I mean, I feel like we're just on such a, a once-in-a-lifetime ride that uh, if it takes me another couple six-month periods to get a hobby, I used to have lots of hobbies. I mean, I'm kind of joking. Like I bike, sure. I cook occasionally, sort of, pretty rarely, actually. But I really enjoy it when I do. So I would say my personal goals are just to, you know, get plenty of sleep, see the people that I love, and uh, stay balanced enough while really focusing on um, doing all that I can to make the muse into what I believe it should be.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, uh, that is all the time that we have today, um, but I want to thank you very much, Catherine, for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. No, it's been great. And I, I'm sure that your insights are going to be very interesting for a lot of people. If uh, folks want to learn more, they should absolutely check out The Muse. And to listen to more podcasts from this series, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, I have just one short word from our sponsor. You never know what might happen next when you're running a small business. But when you have a complete view of your finances from Chase for Business, you can own whatever comes your way. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business.